This is Dalio's Principles of Philosophical Examination, the unofficial podcast companion for Ray Dalio's book, Principles. This podcast will deeply explore the book and principles. The podcast is hosted by Micah Bays and John Sextro. Micah has a PhD in philosophy and has taught numerous college philosophy courses, including The Meaning of Life, Ethics, and Reason and Argument. John shares his perspective from years of experience trying to live out Ray's principles in his life and work. I'm Micah Bays. And I'm John Sextro, and we're back here. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Chapter 3 of Principles. The title of Chapter 3 is My Abyss, and generally covers uh, the years from 1970 to the early 80s, Micah, and there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens in in those intervening years as you as you might guess from the title there's some not so great things that happen but that ultimately really shape and inform how uh, Dalio sees the world and have given him I think some insights that we're going to talk about today and so he uh, he starts off with this silver roller coaster where he realizes that there's there's some maybe some down times ahead so he buys into silver as a commodity, which ends up doing well for him. But what happens? He, he decides essentially that he's going to get out, get out early, right? Yep. He gets out early and, uh, uh another person, uh, the richest man at the, in the world at the time, uh, Bucker Hunt, uh, an oil businessman. Uh, he had been putting money into silver for a long time and, uh, he kept putting money, money into silver even after Ray got out and Ray had advised him to get out. And I believe silver went up to even fifty dollars uh, when it had been ten, and even two dollars. I think when Bucker initially was investing, and uh, so initially Ray was kicking himself, right, um, because he got out at ten dollars, and here he saw it go all the way up to fifty. But then everything changed, and uh, silver lost its value. And he said Bucker had put so much money into it, he pretty much cornered the market. And so when it crashed, he went bankrupt as well. Bunker did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess there's two sides of that coin. Uh, maybe you get out a little nice early. Pun, John. Oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> it was an, a totally unintentional one, too. <laughs> I'll take it. So there's two sides to that intentional pun coin in that you know, he got out early, but he didn't, and he, but he still made money, uh, and, but saw someone who stuck it out longer. Uh, and against his advice, lost a lot of money and ultimately like went, like Micah said, went bankrupt. So I think that starts to form some of his perceptions around timing. Uh, and then on, on the backs of good investments, uh, Dalio decides he's going to expand the team at Bridgewater. And what do they get into, Micah? Cattle? Ah uh, yes, commodities. <laughs> <laughs> they start. They get into the uh, the cattle oh and uh, and livestock commodities, I guess, and they find somebody that's really good at at uh, the cattle and beef industry, a gentleman named Paul Coleman, and so he joins Ray, and then they 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 sort of start um, staffing up the company from there. Right. Initially, they're just working out of Ray's home. Um, I thought it was interesting. He mentioned how his yeah they frequently work they frequently work through dinner. And then they just left the area a mess. 
So they had to have their client meetings at the Harvard Club. You know, you can't invite people over to your messy house to have important business meetings. Certainly not when you have access to the Harvard Club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, why would you? I certainly wouldn't. Um, probably many of us can sort of picture ourselves or imagine ourselves in the same shoes as, as Dalio is in, especially here with his, his new friend, Paul Coleman, who he's like really excited about something. And you know how, when you like are learning a lot of stuff and you really like what you're doing, you get into a certain state of flow where you can sort of forget what time is. And so I think that, or, and what time it is, and you, uh, you just are like enjoying really what you're doing and you're just in that Zen sort of Zenful state of flow. Right. And you know, this kind of goes back to, I think, you know, previous chapter we had talked about where Perret, one of the things for him was meaningful work. And right. He said by that, he meant, you know, that you were engrossed in what you were doing. And this certainly seems to be an example of that for him. You know, he talked about working late at night and uh, just enjoying the back and forth dialogue with Paul, just about, you know, what decisions they should make. And, um, Sound like they had a good uh, a good thing going. So then they hit on some some more hard times. So in uh, seventy nine and eighty one, it's one of the worst economies that um, I guess modern day times of the U S has seen, and it was it was like as bad as things got recently in two thousand seven two thousand eight when when our economy was real bad. So I think you had a story, Micah, about this. Yeah, you know, and at the time of uh, two thousand seven two thousand eight, you know, the crash. Uh, I was in grad school at the time, and I was uh, head of the Graduate Graduate Association of Student Philosophers, GASP. Um, <gasps> Another pun from me, the yeah. GASP. <laughs> and uh, as a part of that, I had to sit in on faculty meetings, and I remember going into one of the faculty meetings right after the stock market had you know, gone down so much, and... You know, a lot of the professors who were close to retiring age, they were talking about how now they were going to have to work extra years because you know their retirement accounts were now low. Um, and at the time, you know, it didn't affect me too much because um, I was a poor grad student, so I didn't have any money in the stock market. You certainly weren't <laughs> retiring. No. You weren't worried. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, th this is an interesting time because there's some there's a few bad years here. And, uh, and Dalio is, is predicting to the world that there's going to be a big, on the back of these bad years, there's going to be a big depression. So he's saying that things are going to go, they're going to go south and they're going to go south really quickly. And he's advising people to, um, to be conservative in the markets. And he even, he even is called in to testify before Congress about what he's seeing. And, and he's on... I've seen some clips. I think they're even included in some of the material that goes along with the book that there's some clips where he's, he's on like big time investment news programs saying things like, you know, be conservative. The market's going South and right. then that doesn't happen at all. Does it? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And initially people thought he was a little bit kooky. I think is maybe the word oh, he yeah. used um, for predicting a depression, but then some of the things that he was predicting, you know, they did happen. And so, yeah, you know, he started really making a name for himself. Yeah, so he had, you know, made that big prediction about the depression, but that prediction turned out to be false. In fact, you know, he said that, um, turns out the uh, market was going to have eight, an 18-year bull run, uh, the greatest non-inflationary growth period in its history. And um, 
So people realized he was dead wrong about the economy. You know, he realized he was dead wrong about the economy. Uh, interestingly, he said the experience felt like a series of blows to the head with a baseball bat. Youch. <laughs> yeah. That's not, uh, that does not sound enjoyable. <laughs> and I think you mentioned he, he was right on some things and, and he got that label kooky, but it's one of those deals where you, uh, maybe you win a few wars, but you end up, you win a few battles. That's it. You win a few battles, but you end up losing the war. And I think that was sort of the case where he, he was smelling some things out and seeing trends and patterns and, and, and making those known to people and getting some and in the short term sort of getting things right. But then the, his longer term vision of what was going to happen in response to those things ended up being wrong. And he, of course, you know, he, he says that that was a very humbling experience for him. But again, this is, we're hearing a lot about, Dalio's background early in the book because it's I think it's really helping set the stage and informing us about how he has sort of logically arrived at at some of the principles that we're going to talk a lot more about in the book how and and just the, his mental model and his mental picture as to how he's arrived at some of those things right yeah you know some of these um yeah this idea of modeling and um some of the work principles he has you know people some people think they're really strange or odd and kooky kooky yeah <laughs> and yet you know when you see his past what has you know gone before you know whether you agree with it or not you at least can understand how he got to where he is now you know what the motivation was um you know right you know one of the other things he said about that experience of being dead wrong he said he realized that quote he had been an arrogant jerk who was totally confident in a totally incorrect view end quote. Um, and so you know, he wanted to avoid that. Yeah. I, I wonder if that was, I know those are the word, his words from the book, but that's, that's Dalio, you know, in the past few years, I wonder what he, what he felt, how he felt about that at the time. I'm, I'm guessing it was similarly insightful in this way, but it, it it says a lot that um, he makes these various he makes these very insightful statements about himself, where he's sort of self self critical, saying, you know, I was arrogant. Um, I'm a dumbass. That's like the first one of the first quotes from the book, right? I'm a dumbass, and I don't know the things I need to know. Uh, so he's he's very aware of the things that that he has done and the and the what he doesn't know. Um, so in addition to the pain of the baseball bat to the head. One of the things I think that's part of that is having to go to his father and get a loan. So he's, things have gotten so bad now he's lost clients. He's had these bad predictions and now he's got to go to his dad and get $4,000 just to make ends meet. Right. Yeah. He, uh, you know, Bridgewater had been around for eight years, uh, I believe. And as a result of being wrong, uh, the company was reduced to just one employee, Ray yeah. himself. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, even Paul Coleman had to, had to pack up and, and move elsewhere, move back to where he was from maybe. Right. All right. And you just think about, I think about the humiliation of that, you know, he had gone from being so important and so well-respected that Congress was calling him in to testify before him because his opinions were so well-respected. Right. And here it is, he was completely wrong and his company's largely just decimated. But at least it's a, it's an interesting life though, Micah. <laughs> That's true. So he, <laughs> he was, he was glad, right? 
I really, really have, I, you know, wonder and think hard about it because thinking about this, uh, as, as an individual, my, as my own self, boy, I mean, I, this is the sort of thing that, that would probably scare me back to a, a day job, so to speak, you know, going back to work for a company just because, uh, I don't, I don't think I have, I don't think I have the intestinal fortitude to suffer through the financial loss first and, and a long second, a, a long follow up to that is the humility. I could probably live with the humility, but I don't know that I could live through, uh, the, the humility, the humiliation of the, the financial loss and everything that goes along with that. Yeah. I think, you know, it was part of the, part of the humiliation I think would be just, you know, is probably no longer in some of the same social circles he was, um, you know, probably gave up the Harvard club membership. Um, I'm assuming that's not cheap. And you know, I think too about, you know, there's humiliation, but then also the question of, you know, can he build his business back up again? Um, I would think it would be very hard to get new investors, right? After you've made this huge prediction, you know, that's known worldwide and then it crashes, who's going to want to invest with him again, right? It's going to, it's definitely going to take a lot of trust from the investors. And I guess you, I sort of, he is really back to square one because he had built up a series of investors and, and people that wanted him to manage the money for them for, for funds and whatnot. And maybe, maybe some of that, you know, is sort of like, um, well, that's experience anyway. And I think in, maybe in financial circles, uh, there's, there's a high tolerance for, for getting it wrong if you can show an ability to come back from it. And so I know that's probably what he really had to focus on was trying to figure out how to come back from it. So he, he starts to get into, he starts to really analyze what went wrong in, in his decision-making. And he, he comes up with these, these, uh, his, he, ta- he calls them his intractable investment problems. So he, he talks about three mistakes that he made, Micah, right? Yep. Uh, yeah. So the first mistake he said, he was wildly overconfident and he let his emotions get the best of him. Um, you know, so at one point he said, uh, when he was talking to wall street week, he said, there'll be no soft landing. I can say that with absolute certainty because I know how markets work. <laughs> and yeah. of course this was before the crash. And then, well, before he was, before he was wrong um, and the market didn't crash. Yeah. So that was probably where he thought of himself later on as being very arrogant, right? In right. that statement. Yep. Uh, second, he said that he failed to sufficiently study history to learn the relevant principles that applied to the current situation. Um, so he talked about now he made it a point to go back and he's going to study, you know, the major economies for the last hundred years to understand how those various economies worked. Um, and he thinks that, you know, what, what he was looking for are some, what he says, timeless and universal decision principles um, to know, you know, what kind of, to know what's going to happen in the market. It's, it seemed to me that maybe this is the, maybe the second time he's, he's uh, made this mistake where he hasn't looked at history because I think in a previous chapter, he also made the, made the same mistake. So maybe this is sort of a realization of, man, I said I was going to, study history more. And I, in this case, I failed to look at historical examples to try to apply them to what's currently happening. Right. Yeah. He talked about, 
I think after his uh, initial investment in Northwest Airlines or whatever it was, just when he was a kid, you know, he said if he had looked back at history, he would have had a better understanding of you know how the market was going to work. Um, and so it sounds like maybe he did do that for a while, but you think maybe he once he started getting a lot of success with his predictions, maybe he stopped looking back at history as much. Right. Yeah. And that's where the, maybe the arrogance comes in. Hey, I'm getting things right. I don't need to look at that. I understand it enough now. Right? Yes. Totally could see that happening. And then the third problem, uh, the intractable investment problem, he says he failed to remember the difficulty of timing the market. Um, he says, even if you can accurately, accurately predict what will happen in the market. You can't accurately predict when it will happen. Uh, it's kind of interesting. You know, right now my wife and I are, we've talked about, you know, getting a little bit bigger house. We've got three kids now and, uh, would like, you know, maybe a basement that they could really play in and, you know, just a little more space, but the housing market is also very expensive right now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we'd hate to buy now if, you know, it's actually a housing bubble. And so, you know, I kind of want to wait it out a little bit and see if the market's going to go down a little bit. But if Ray's right, I can't really predict what's going to happen. And you just kind of buy your house when you're going to buy your house and just hope it wasn't at the peak of a bubble. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you, uh, that, that you use that as an example. And, and I wonder if, if what this, if what he's saying is that, there's more, there's more that needs to go into trying to figure out the timing that it's not easily predictable, but there have to be, I would hope that I would like to imagine that there's a way to find some signs and use some of those signs or some of those indicators to help, help drive your behavior. Uh, I'm not sure it, it's a total, well, just, just uh, chalk it, chalk it up, and say, "Well, I, uh, you know, we, I can't, I can't predict the timing, so I just give up and I do it whenever." Right? There has to be something. Right? Yeah. I mean, if you, you know, given he's obviously in investments, you've you've got to be making predictions about what's going to be increasing in value and what's going to decrease. Um, so maybe it's more of like a range, right? You can't say exactly when it's going to happen, but you can give a decent estimate of okay, in this time period, we have good reason for thinking it's going to happen. Yeah. And, and this goes back a little bit to, I think the, the talk, the silver discussion where he sold when he had made money, uh, but he didn't make as much money as he possibly could have on the silver. And there's always, there's always a, a peak, a pinnacle for any of these sorts of things. And there's a bottom, there's a top and a bottom for all of these. And, and I think what, I think maybe the lesson here is that you have to recognize that, we should recognize that when we make a time-based decision like this, uh, we don't want it to just be totally arbitrary, but you, you want there to be some good thinking behind it. And if by happen chance you buy a house before the market is completely at the bottom and you notice that, Hey, that I could have bought this house for $20,000 less in, in a month. It's like, so what, you know, you, you still, you used good thinking. You bought when, when you thought the market was appropriate based on your needs and your family's needs. And, and so what if the market went down a little bit more or same thing if you had sold a house and it was the market was on the rise. It's like, again, you don't know where the, the top and the end states are for these. And you have to just make a good decision, the best decision you can with the information you have. 
So those were the three uh, mistakes that fall into the category of, of Dalio's intractable investment problem. And uh, he, he will talk a little bit more about what he does to compensate for those. But first, we wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, living this terrific life with all the risk and how does that impact your, your quality of life, maybe, or your, your overall happiness as a, as a member of society and in your family and all of those things. The heavy philosophical stuff that Micah likes. Yes. <laughs> what I find are the really interesting philosophical stuff. Um, so one, which I mean, philosophical, but also personal. Uh, one of the things Ray talks about is, you know, after all of this happened and, you know, he's back to the only employee of Bridgewater. Um, he said, you know, he, he had a decision to make. There's a kind of fork in the road. Um, he could, he had a wife and two kids and, you know, he felt this responsibility to provide for them and, you know, his business hadn't been successful. And so he thought, well, you know, given this responsibility I have for my wife and kids, should I take a wall street job? You know, he said, that's not what he wanted to do at all. What he saw as a terrific life was presumably having his own business, running his own, running his own business. Um, but that has higher risks. And so he felt like, well, could he really choose that, what he would call the terrific life for himself? Could he pursue what he saw as a terrific life, even though he had these responsibilities, you know, to his wife and kids? Um, so he says that even, even after the crash, he knew he had to go after the terrific life with all its risks. Um, so, you know, one question for me, you know, when I, when I read a statement like that is, well, how did he quote unquote, and he, you know, he's probably speaking metaphorically here, but he said he knew he had to go after the terrific life with all its risks. And you kind of wonder, well, one, is that kind of an arrogant judgment? Like, how do you know that you've got to go after the terrific life? Um, I suspect maybe it was more of just a, um, an expression of his feelings about, well, this is what's really valued, valuable to me. You know, I can't, see myself living life in an ordinary way, right? I have to live this terrific life and ordinary life is one that's just, you know, beyond his comprehension as far as something that he could choose to live. Right. Um, I think it was more that he knew it for himself rather than, which is a feeling rather than, but individually, maybe it is fact knowledge, whatever you want to call it. He knew for himself he had to do that or he just wouldn't be satisfied or content. Right. Yeah, yeah, that was a question I something I had wondered, yeah. Is this maybe more of just a lack of contentment? So we won't get into this too much here, but uh as far as, you know, whether there's a problem of contentment on Ray's part, uh there's a couple philosophers and their associated philosophies that think a lot of the problems we have in life are actually due to our wanting too much, our desiring too much. And you know, so one is uh Epicurus, he is a hedonist who thought, hey, the only good in life is pleasure. The only thing that's bad is pain. And then uh, there's Epictetus, who is a Stoic. And roughly the idea is you should live life in accordance with reason, um, which, yeah, that all has to be fleshed out, but we won't do that here. Uh, but they were both in agreement that, hey, there's roughly various natural desires that we have that do need to be fulfilled. And those are for the basics like food, water, shelter, those kinds of things. But a lot of the other desires that we have for 
really nice houses. I guess they're speaking to me and my desire for a bigger house. Um, bigger house, maybe fame, maybe uh, you know, a lot of success in your business or in your career. Those are what they're going to call unnatural or unnecessary desires. And we go through a lot of work just to satisfy those desires. And we would actually be better off if we would limit our desires, if we would lessen them. And so anyways, I just wonder if Ray's kind of an example here um, of what they're talking about that, you know, maybe he just needed to lessen his desires, learn to be content with a quote unquote ordinary life. Hmm. That's interesting to, to consider. I often have found myself trying to uh, be more, more following along with the stoic lifestyle because I've, I've also noticed that my desire to, uh, to want things and material objects and that sort of thing um, is, is not healthy or is not true happiness for me. So I, I wonder that too, as we read through this chapter. Yeah. Um, you know, so another thing I was, I thought about when he talks about just, uh, you know, from personal, uh, my personal background. So when he talked about, you know, this decision of, uh, pursuing a life that was terrific or taking the wall street job to ensure that he could pay, you know, provide for his wife and kids. You know, when I was, when I finished my PhD in philosophy, uh, I was on the job market. I had a few adjunct positions, uh, you know, here in St. Louis at several colleges, but adjuncting for those who don't know is just part time. You pick up one class, maybe two, but you're not on full time. Uh, the next semester, if they don't need you, then they don't hire you for another class. And most importantly, adjuncts get paid terribly. Um, so, you know, it depends, you know, where you are, you know, geography and all that. But, you know, here in St. Louis, roughly you get about $3,000 per class. Four classes is considered a full load. So, right, if you're teaching four classes, that's $12,000 a semester as an adjunct, right? That's certainly no way to make a living. That's not something you can really provide your family. That's with. probably below the poverty line. Yeah. Yeah. Now, thankfully, my wife had a job. Um, and so with her job, plus, you know, the adjunct positions I had, you know, we definitely had enough, right? We weren't <laughs> close to the poverty line. Um, but I had this choice. I could continue to pursue a full-time professorship somewhere, um, or I could cut my losses and run, mm. essentially not run, but, you know, uh, I could pursue another avenue of a career to where I could make a livable wage. And, um you know, I wonder, would Ray say, hey, Micah, no, you should have gone after the, after the terrific life. Of course, that presumes that the life of a philosophy professor for me is maybe the only terrific life I could have. I suspect there are multiple yeah, I mean, types of lives that could be terrific. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good point that there, there, are, there are other ways to have, are there, it's not, there's not just one path to a terrific life. There could be or uh, an interesting life or whatever that is, there could be, there could be many paths. So it, it it's, it's up to each individual really, isn't it? Uh, maybe <laughs> again, I'm, I'm an objectivist about some of these things. So yeah. Uh, all I'm saying is there might be wrong paths to choose, but that doesn't mean that there aren't various lives that 
could be terrific. There's right? options. Some of them are better than others, and some of them are terrible. Right. And some of them are terrific. That's what I think. Okay. So, Mike, on that note, if we think back to the risk that you took in your in your history as being a professor and trying to decide what you were going to do there, and then also considering what we just talked about with the risks that Ray has taken, how do you think about taking risk? Is there a way, is there a rational standard that we can apply to evaluating a risk to, def- to decide if we should take it or not? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I'm not, you know, confident in my answer on this, but you know, sure you I, are. You're the expert. <laughs> uh, yeah, when you start to do philosophy, you realize you're not an expert in anything. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I tried to kind of simplify this down for myself, just to think about, you know, what would it look like for risk to be rational? Right. On the one hand, you might say, well, if something's a risk, it isn't going to be rational, but I don't think that's the case. Um, so it seems to me that maybe perhaps risk is rational when choosing the risk um, gives you a higher expected value, right? The outcome of choosing that risk or pursuing that risk gives you a higher expected overall value than not pursuing that risk. Uh, so what do I mean by expected value? So one, uh, let me just make up a phrase, uh, called life quality units, life quality units. Yeah. All right. It's coined here today. Life quality units. Okay. What is that? Um, so presumably the right, we each have some degree of quality to our life. And a lot of times when we're wanting to take risks, we're wanting to improve the quality of our life. Definitely. Um, I'm just calling life quality units. I'm leaving it vague so you can determine what you think. I'm leaving room for us to flesh out what exactly improves our life. Is it pleasure that makes our lives go better? Is it achievement, success, those sorts of things? Um, So for a risk to be rational, um, it seems like it needs to make... Uh, the expected value of pursuing that risk needs to be greater than not pursuing that risk. So uh, let's maybe keep in line with Ray here and think about his situation where, you know, he wanted to go out on his own, kind of have his own business. He didn't want to just have a job you know, down on wall street. Um, and so let's say that by going out and pursuing his own job uh, or pursuing his own business, if he were successful, let's say that would improve his life by, again, this is arbitrary, but five life quality units. Um, Goes up five LQUs. Exactly. Okay. Um, and, right, it goes up because, you know, working on his own, you know, if he's successful in this risk, he'll make more money, presumably, than he would at just some desk job at Wall Street. Um, maybe some more fame, maybe some more flexibility in his day-to-day life, right? It's not eight to five or, I don't know, Wall Street people probably work more like, I don't know, eight to 10 or something, <laughs> eight to 10 p.m., uh, 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Not, not uh, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Right. <laughs> That'd, <laughs> That'd be, be pretty great. Nice. Yeah. Um, and, right, and it might be kind of like self-actualization, right? He's pursuing the things he wants to do. So, anyways, it improves his life, let's say, five life quality units, 
but let's say his risk, he takes the risk and he's unsuccessful. Well, again, this is arbitrary, but let's say then he would lose 10 life quality units. Um, right. He's bankrupt. Uh, maybe he has to lose his house and his car. Uh, think about all the stress that would then be involved, you know, just in his marriage and in his family life. And so all of the negative stuff that goes with losing your business, being unsuccessful there. Um, we might think that would be a loss of 10 life quality units. So in this scenario, right, there's two outcomes. And I've, again, simplified this. This isn't how <laughs> neat and tidy most of our life decisions are. But just for example, so for Ray, right, with this decision, then we might say uh, one possible outcome is a gain of five life quality units, but the other possible outcome is a loss of 10 life quality units. So when would it be rational to take this risk? Well, it's going to depend, it seems, on the chance of success. How likely is he to be successful here? And let's say it was 50-50. You know, he has a 50% chance of uh, success, 50% chance of failure. Well, if that's the case, then there's a 50% chance he will improve his life by five. So 50% chance that's two and a half, right? Um, expected gain, but there's a 50% chance he'll be unsuccessful. So 50% chance of minus 10 is negative five. You put those together. The expected value here on a 50, 50 chance is negative two and a half. Mm. Right. So, math. math is hard. Math is hard. Um, and so it seems like in that case, on a 50-50 chance, risk would be, you might say, irrational because the expected value is negative. So for this risk to be rational, it seems like the chance of success has to be two times greater than the chance of failure. Um, I cause see. Because then, then you would have an expected value that's positive. Right. Um, and again, this is a very, very basic scenario. Life isn't this neat and cut and dry, but um, it seems to me that's how we would understand risk to be rational. We operate the podcast on the value for value model. We are entirely listener supported. If you enjoy the podcast and find value in the information and entertainment you receive, you can donate to the podcast on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Dalio's Principles and click support this podcast. There are even more ways to support the show. You can dazzle all of your friends with information learned on the show and share the show with them on social media. Also, you can review us on iTunes. It'd be awesome if you blog about it or even talked about our podcast on your very own podcast. And you can always direct your friends to our subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash Dalio's principles. And now back to the show. I feel like this is the sort of calculus that most rational thinking beings work through like in microseconds all the time or milliseconds all the time where you're faced with a choice and um, maybe driving isn't a good example, but like if you were going to, if you were going to, you know, people climb mountains and if you're going to climb a mountain, you're trying to evaluate, is it risky? And, you know, is the risk of me dying climbing this mountain 
um, a, a valuable enough uh, alternative or a valuable enough outcome where I get rewarded with great feelings and notoriety and all of these things. And so people are doing that calculus all the time, I think. Yeah. Um, and I find it difficult to determine, <laughs> you know, when is it rational, right? So uh, in a week or so, my wife and I and the kids were going to fly out to Colorado, do some skiing. And, you know, of course, I think about the flying and about the possibility of a plane crash. And I'm like, is this makes sense, right, to put my life on the line to go fly down a mountain, you know? But in uh, just to think about that a little bit further, it's much riskier to drive your automobile to work, they say. Uh, I'm not an expert in this, but that it's, it's riskier to drive to work than it is to fly in an airplane. So... Uh, maybe there's a maybe you have some irrational thinking about the your uh, about flying, right? Yeah, my focus on it. I should be focused on my drive to work, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yep. Well, so and talking more about risks and and the risks that that Dalio has taken, he he goes back again to this terrific life, and he keeps talking about that. And I think what you mentioned, Micah is very apropos this whole idea of these life quality units and evaluating doing that evaluation and that calculus to say, is this, is there a, is there enough reward for me to take this risk? And so Dalio starts to really think about um, how do I, how do I know that the risk that I'm going to take has enough value to it so that it's a worthwhile risk. And, and, He's all the time. It seems like his goal is to try to maximize the amount of reward and minimize that downside, the risk, um, but, but still keeping the, the upside as high as possible, but he's willing to, he's willing to bring the upside down so that he can bring the negative side closer to zero in terms of that risk, rather than ending up with this big, having a big flop like had maybe happened to him previously where he had a real big, real big risk, but it also had a, had a real big, could have had a great outcome, but it also could have had a disastrous uh, outcome, which he went through. And so he's trying to balance that more. And, and he starts to think about, okay, how do I, how can I evaluate this better and know what some of those, maybe some of those numbers are, those life quality units, if you will, and then learn about, okay, how do I know? back to this again with the truth. How do I know what's true? How do I know what's right? And he starts to develop this. He starts to develop this idea or use this idea of, of the idea meritocracy where he just wants people to come with the, their best ideas and each individual is evaluated based on how accurate they've been in the past and the things that they know about. Micah, let's talk a little bit more about this concept of idea meritocracy because it's just so important to, I think, overall the book. It's a very foundational element. Um, what what I think what Dalio is talking about here is is that you're no longer evaluate it based on like your position within a company. You're really evaluated. Your opinion is evaluated based on uh, your your smarts and a tr- and your past track record of how how right you've been in the past. So for for us to have this idea of meritocracy, 
one thing we have to be comfortable with is to have like civil disagreement uh, amongst the people that are knowledgeable about a topic so that if you throw out an idea, I I can, I can discuss that idea with you in a, in a civil way so that we can figure out, well, what's really true about this idea and figure out what's, what's right. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, we might come in and have two opposing views about what should be done in a certain situation. Um, And if I'm really timid, maybe I don't want to share my view with you because one, I might, one, one, I might just be worried that my view isn't good and then, you know, that'll be exposed and people will think I'm dumb. Um, and so you know, I have to be willing to, one, put my ideas out there. Um, but. Um, and, and, and very much, I think that if you have an expertise in an area, so uh, like this in, in, in philosophy, if you would state a, a fact or an opinion about philosophy or philosophizers, <laughs> philosophizers is not the word. It's philosophers. Um, I, I would I would not have as much ground to stand on as you would in that opinion. Your opinion should be mo- more higher weighted than mine. But if you're timid, and I'm not, and I'm the opposite of that, and I'm very uh, gregarious and and talkative and all of those things, I might drown your opinion out in a group setting mm-hmm. and then that would be that would that would be a detractor to what our real common goal is which is to is to come up with a the right answer right yeah so ideally you know in business and other aspects of life right the idea that wins out isn't the loudest one right isn't the one that comes from the loudest person but preferably <laughs> ideally would come from the person who has the best ideas or the best knowledge um, and it very well, most of the time is probably more a refinement, right? Someone proposes an idea and people think about how to make it a better idea. Um, but yeah, so idea meritocracy, um, you know, Ray contrasts this with, you might say an idea democracy where, you know, in a do- democracy, we think of you know, one person, one vote. And, you know, in that situation, you are not weighting anyone's opinions as better or more informed than another. It's just, Hey, as long as you have an opinion, it counts. And so, right. If you have eight people who know nothing about a topic and two people who know very much about it, if the eight people vote the same way in a democracy, that poor idea they have is going to win. So that's in a democracy. You've got one vote, one person, everybody's equal, but then there's, I mean, organizations don't typically run like that even. Very few organizations, I think, operate in a democracy because there's hierarchy, right? And then how does that, how does that work? Right, yeah. Um, you know, one of the negatives you can have in an organization or just in a meeting, uh, I guess in a, business, uh, in a business meeting is what they call, some people, I guess, call HIPPO, uh, highest paid person's opinion, where, you know, instead of, being concerned about what's the best idea. Once the highest paid person speaks and gives their idea, one, they might, you know, use their quote unquote power to kind of silence other opinions or other people might be afraid of challenging or offering an alternative because they're not the highest paid person. Um, And 
the goal in an idea meritocracy is for that to not happen, right? Let's put all the ideas out there and, you know, may the best idea win. And the best idea has to be evaluated again by your experience in a subject area, not just because you're the highest paid person in the room or the highest ranking person in an organization, uh, that, that you have some sort of official standing education, experience, track record that is able to cause your opinion to be uh, more, more believable on it, on the topic than someone else's. Right. Okay. That's a, that's sort of the, a bit of a deeper dive into idea meritocracy. And I think we'll hear as we go through the book, as we continue reading through the book, we'll see a lot more about that. So how do you, uh, how do you do this? I think the, the way Ray talks about doing it in the book is, you know, some of the keys are to surround yourself with people that are smart in the areas that are important to what you're doing. So go out, get smart people, find out what they, um, you know, find out what they know about, what's their experience and then use them effectively in, in your decision-making process and really value what they have to say. Yeah. There's a book I've read. Can't remember if I mentioned it on here before, but, um, by Daniel Kahneman called thinking fast and slow. And a lot of it is about the psychology of just how our minds work and how our, how we make decisions. And, um, one of the things he talks about is there's this idea of a concept of what you see is all there is. And so if you're relying just on, right. Uh, so if you're just relying on your own experience, if you come across some scenario where you've got to make a decision, the only possibilities that you're going to see are the ones that you've already experienced or been aware of, but that doesn't mean that there aren't actually other possibilities out there. And so that's one of the benefits of an idea meritocracy is if you bring in other people who are really smart and um, if they disagree with you, you're going to get exposed possibly to some other possibilities that you wouldn't have otherwise. And so then you may realize, oh, wait, there really is a better path forward than I was thinking. Um, yeah, so bringing those other alternative ideas and people together um, can kind of minimize that what you see is all there is effect. Yeah, I think, uh, I think Dalio refers to that as compensating for your weaknesses or accounting for your weaknesses so that you're, you're surrounding yourself with people that have that expanded view that you don't have in order for you to get insight there. Mm -hmm. uh, Dalio further goes on to say that a lot of the extraordinary people, extraordinarily successful people that he's met have also had, uh, had big failures, which means that you can only really have big failures like that through experience. It's hard to have a failure simply through education or reading about other failures. It can go a certain you know, you can get something out of that learning about others, fail others, failures, but you really almost have to experience them to really learn about that, that whole life quality unit evaluation and mm -hmm. to help you know about how, you, how just mechanically to make good decisions. Micah, there's a quote in the book that uh, Dalio references from Steve Jobs that relates to this. What was that? Yeah, so uh, Steve Jobs, he was talking about uh, when he got fired from Apple back in 1985. Um, yeah, this is before, of course, Apple rehired him later on. Yep. 
Um, but in reference to getting fired, he said it was awful tasting medicine, but I guess the patient needed it. Sometimes life hits you in the head with a brick. Don't lose faith. I'm convinced that the only thing that kept me going was that I loved what I did. Yeah. So that was a very important, seemingly important moment in hindsight, because I think that that caused jobs to have some introspection about himself and that he realized he had to behave and act differently in order to get the things that he wanted. But it was through that failure that he really had that eye-opening experience. And that's, I think, what Dalio is talking about here. And in terms of really successful people having to have some of those failures in order to move past what they, they couldn't see previously. Right. Yeah. You know, you might think maybe if he didn't get fired, he wouldn't have been as introspective about his um, knowledge and about his practices to improve those. And so maybe if, maybe he would, if he continued to lead Apple, it would have just been a mediocre company, right? Not the juggernaut that it is today. Yeah. Or who knows how it could have gone. So this, where I think we finally now um, are about to wrap up this chapter, Micah, and it really wraps up with what we've been, what we've sort of been hinting at all along, which is what Dalio calls the Holy grail of investing. It, and I don't think it just applies to investing this, this applies to life in general. And it's that as you went through the life quality units calculation and explained some of the math to us there, it's all about that having rewards with an acceptable level of risk and making sure that uh, you have enough reward for enough, the risk that you're taking that it just is rational and that it makes sense. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And you know, this, this Holy grail investing also kind of addresses, you know, the concern I had um, earlier about, you know, him pursuing the life he really wanted, even though he knew he had, you know, this obligation to his wife and kids. And, you know, he was worried about whether pursuing his own life, you know, pursuing what he saw as his best life. Yeah. You know, that could have detrimental effects for his wife and kids. Um, and so, yeah, he talks about the Holy Grail investing. And so I think he's going to say, look, he found a way that he was able to pursue that greater uh, reward, that higher reward with little risk. Um, At least to, with an acceptable level of risk in his mind. Right. And I wonder if, if that's an area, and Micah, how you feel about this, if um, since we're in the moment of evaluating a risk, it would seem like that's an, that's also an important moment in time for the idea meritocracy to shine through and for others to help us gain insights about that risk and what the risk really means. Because if I'm sort of a risk taking person, I may have a blind spot to just how risky something is. And you mentioned this concept about, a movie where kids were laying down on the highway and cars were racing past them. I mean, young people sort of have a, a, um, a faulty brain to a certain extent or a brain that hasn't quite evolved all the way where they're not fully able to comprehend some of these risks. Right. And so they have a blind spot to right. things like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're, we were talking earlier, I think off, <laughs> off the podcast about uh, the movie, I think it was called the program back in the nineties. Um, and it, as a part of the movie, there's a football team and they went and laid down in the middle of a 
highway or middle of the street, right on the yellow line. And they lay down and the idea was to not get hit by cars that were driving by them. And, uh, so right. That seems like that's an irrational risk. Um, I'd say so. (laughs) (laughs) And and it would have been helpful, right. If they had had some people who could have come along and told them before they did it, uh, that it was irrational or, you know, they could, they exposed to them the bad things about what they were doing. Absolutely. And so likewise, you know, we, when we're making decisions that involve risk with an idea of meritocracy, you know, we would want to search out and find out the best thinking we can from others as to whether it's a good risk or not. Micah, do you think it's really true that in, in most or all circumstances you can rationalize your way to, and how would, how would Dalio know if, if a risk has enough reward to, uh, to make it a valuable move based on, based on the negative impacts that could occur? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've got some real concerns here, um, about that, you know, about that idea that, you know, Ray's saying that, Hey, in most scenarios, there's, you know, you may not, it may not be obvious right away, but eventually you'll be able to find, um, a way to get that high reward, but with a lower risk, uh, option. And partly I'm thinking about, you know, cause he's saying that, you know, Hey, in life, right? You might think that you either have a high risk, high reward option or low risk, low reward option. And he wants to say, if you give it time, you might be able to discover that. Well, he wants to say that most of the time there is going to be a high reward, low risk option. And you just have to maybe wait to discover what that is. And so, you know, my thought is how do we know that's true, right? How do we say most of the time there's going to be this high reward, low risk option available. Um, so one, right. Is Ray just talking about based on his own experience that let's say, right. He had 10 times where it looked like he only had a high risk, high reward or low risk, low reward option. And then he waited and Oh, eight of the times he was able to discover a high reward, low risk option. And was he really just waiting or was there in that time that passed in the time that was used, was that time spent searching and evaluating mm-hmm. other alternatives? Right. Yeah. And I, you know, certainly I think you would say, yeah, you, you'll be looking out for it. You're going to be trying to find it. Um, but he does say there's going to be that option available. And I'm just thinking, well, is he basing that just on his own experience? Cause it doesn't seem like I want to base my life purely on the experiences Ray has had. Is he basing that on, you know, what's his sample set? What's his data for this, uh, to make a claim that in general, most of the time you have a high risk or sorry, you have a high reward, low risk option available to you. So I just have some, concerns about how we would know that is true. So what do you think the advice is or what, what sort of advice would you give to yourself as you're, as you're evaluating buying a house and taking this trip? You know, uh, do you, are you going to wait or what will you do? Are you just going to wait until like the perfect time? Uh, well, I, I'm known for having uh, analysis paralysis. Ah, so you, <laughs> you do wait. Yeah. Uh, I do wait. And then, you know, 
probably, you know, problem problematically. So I uh, tend to wait until I'm like forced to make a decision. Um, and you know, there's yeah flaws with that approach. Sure. Um, so I, I don't know. And I think, and that's what paralyzes me. Right? That's why I don't make the decision is because a lot of times I, I don't know that there really is good data about making one choice with one way or the other. So in a lot of cases, I'm not sure that there's a rational way to make your decision. Yeah. That's, that's what makes this a lot harder than it sounds because we've simplified it in a lot of cases as we've given examples. Um, but when you apply this to all of the real world things that we deal with, it's not just that crystal clear. It, it, there's, I can't count up the LQUs all of the time and say I could get I could get ten for five or I could get twenty for two. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's much it's much less clear than that. It's much foggier, much blurrier to us. Right. Yeah. And hopefully I can do this quickly here. But um, you know, one of the just with our house example. You know, right now we love our location. Um, we have a friend who's a babysitter. She comes to our house to watch our kids. And, you know, so that's really convenient. My, one of my daughters goes to a daycare that's right down the road. Um, so if we move, we're likely going to lose, we would lose the daycare, obviously, being that close to it at least. Um, babysitter, maybe she won't want to go to wherever we have our new house. Um, and so is having a bigger house worth losing all of those conveniences. How do you rationally weigh out these things? Right. And then you take on the added risk of a larger mortgage. How do you put that into the calculation? Yeah. It's very muddy. And like Dalio says in the book that it's sort of systematizing these decisions and you see people doing this in the real world in a sort of a simple way, but it's creating a list of pros and a list of cons. And, and I don't know that using the, idea meritocracy example, we don't want to democratically give each pro and each con equal weight. So you may be going through your list of pros and cons and saying, well, this, this pro over here of having more space, that one is worth like 10 points where, you know, access to childcare, uh, proximity to friends and family, proximity to restaurants, how much of those sort of eat away at this bigger house thing. So you're doing that trying to do that calculus right in a a systematized way trying and a lot of times it feels like comparing apples to oranges yeah (laughs) absolutely all right so we're sort of getting into um uh our our own philosophies so we should probably start to share our points to ponder for chapter three what do you have all right so uh first one's series of questions so one is is your workplace an idea meritocracy right do you feel like at your workplace it's the best idea that typically wins out or do you feel like it's a democracy where everyone has an equal vote or is it some kind of um, payment based uh, ocracy highest, payocracy or something payocracy or highest paid person, right? Hippocracy. <laughs> uh, I guess a uh, hypocrisy, hey. uh, but uh, sorry, dad joke. Um, yeah. That was a good one. Oh, thank you. Uh, I am a dad. And uh, yeah, so, or do you feel like, yeah, decisions are made or ideas are chosen because of, you know, who's giving it um, based just on their payment, you know, how much they make or their status. Um, 
So is your workplace an idea meritocracy? If not, how different do you think it would be if it were an idea meritocracy? Do you think it would be a better place to work? Um, and so then the follow-up question is, you know, would you like your workplace to be an idea meritocracy? Yeah, I like that a lot. And, and just to tack onto it a little bit, thinking, um, yeah, if you would like it to be, what sort of small things could you do uh, to help edge edge your edge your workplace in that direction? Like maybe if you run a meeting uh, every week or every month or something, maybe maybe that's an opportunity where someone could say, I want to start to use this sort of a, an idea, or this sort of a philosophy, the idea meritocracy as part of how we do decision making in our in our meetings. And what else did you have, Micah? Yeah, so my second point to ponder was, uh, what is a big reward you would like to pursue but haven't because you think the risk is too great? Yeah. And then when you're thinking about that, is there is there something that's slightly smaller that still approaches that big that big uh, reward that you want to pursue, but slightly smaller, but there's also less risk. Right. So the, the Dalio option. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Those are good ones. Uh, so uh, Mike, if you have anything to add to mine, please let me know. Uh, on being right, who are the people around you that can thoughtfully disagree with you to help you find out who's right? So um, in your workplace again, or in your, in your personal life, identifying the people around you that, that you know you can have thoughtful disagreement about and who you'd want to have thoughtful disagreement about because they have valuable opinions. Okay, and then my last point to ponder is when making a decision, and, and when you're making a decision considering this, have I really considered all of the options? This goes back to what Micah was talking about before, where I may only know a subset of options based on my experience. So are there... Are there other options that are available to me that I just don't flat out don't know about? So how yeah. do I find out if there are more getting more people involved to help me? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You might follow up. What are some ways that you can increase your awareness of other possibilities? So maybe that's, maybe that's part of the slowing down that we, that Dalio suggests doing slowing down in order to give yourself time to think Ooh, there could be more options. Sort of being mindful about the fact, mindful and aware of the fact that I don't know everything. I can't know everything. So I have to assume that there are other options that I just haven't thought of. And now how do I go about finding out about those? All right. So those are our points to ponder. And that's chapter three. Next time we'll be back with chapter four and more to talk about. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going on our subreddit, Dalio's Principles at reddit.com. The subreddit is Dalio's Principles, all one word. Join us to interact with a community of like-minded individuals.